Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Well, welcome to another edition of Unfiltered with Chris Townsend here on A's Cast, our tune-in station for the Oakland Athletics that loves to give you 24-7 coverage of the Oakland Athletics. And I know I've talked a lot about having our broadcasters on with us. And one guy that you're going to hear because you have to hear, he's the voice of summer. He's the voice of your Oakland Athletics. It's Ken Korak, and he's written another book. So we're going to talk about his new book. We're sitting here at Oracle Park before the final game of basically spring training and exhibition where we'll have tomorrow off and then on Thursday opening day out at the ballpark angels and a's and you're going to hear this probably either on thursday or friday but uh you're going to be a big part of what we're going to be doing here on a's cast and i'm really excited about it i am too i mean 24 7 a's talk and everything under the kind of the auspices of chris townsend i mean this is a can't win can't lose i mean it's a guaranteed win proposition for us you know i think about a's coverage and just knowing what it's been in all the different stations and, and, and the, really the crazy history of A's on the radio. And I've been saying this and I think it's 100% true is that since this team moved west in 1968 from Kansas City, there is no question this is going to be the greatest coverage that the A's have ever had and that the fan base has ever been exposed to. You know the old show WKRP? And the, 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 the theme song was town to town, up and down this dial, or up and down the dial. And that's kind of what it's felt like for us over all these years. So I think we found a home this year, and I think the comprehensive coverage and uh, content for A's fans and uh i think it's it's great what matt pearl and and chris giles and dave cavill and the rest of the front office i think they listened to the fans chris in the off season uh when the a's had it, it was clear that the a's were switching radio stations uh there was that period we weren't exactly sure where we were going but um to have the the online component with uh, the streaming on TuneIn, to have our flagship station 860 and then the a's network i i really think this is so important to me and, and all of us, that the folks in the A's front office, Chris, understand how important radio is and the coverage of baseball on the radio to the A's fans. 
No doubt. And I think that the, the new generation of people who are running franchises understand that they need to speak or they need to listen and they need to speak to the fans and they need to listen to what the fans want because you're consum- if you're a consumer, if you don't do what your consumer wants, they're not going to show up and they're not going to show up in the stands. They're not going to show up listening on the radio. They're not going to show up on television. So I think what they're doing is very smart because – there's, there's no question to me that A's fans know that they now have a voice and that Dave Cavill and Chris Giles will listen to, to, to their wants and their needs. And baseball is still the great six-month story. Um, it's a story that's told every day, and we, you know, it's just like a cliche now to say it, but the chapters of the book get turned every day. And I think it's baseball serves that great role um, to be kind of almost a, a, a way to provide comfort for fans. I've always felt... Chris, that part of what we do um, is to reach out for sh- to, to shut-ins, the people who can't come to the ballpark. And when you hear from uh, people who are struggling with their sight, you know, we've, we've heard from, from blind people. And if we can be a companion for those folks, and maybe in the romantic sense of what we do, a member of the family, because it's a constant thing, it's every day, that's the rhythm of the season. And I think that people who are, are the ardent fans of the game really enjoy immersing themselves in how their team is doing and i think through what you're doing with A's cast will give uh give the A's, give our fans i think an in-depth glimpse at what's going on not only on the field but behind the scenes uh with so many of the players and members of the front office and people like that so before we get into your book let's talk about this team a little bit it it, it, it's fun to go to japan but it is odd for the team to where you have a short exhibition we both got to talk to kurt young before the game the a's former pitching coach part of the 1989 world series team one of the great a's of all time and i was talking to him before this game and he's he's like yeah i mean you guys were barely at spring training it seemed like and the next you know you're off to japan you play two more exhibition games against the japanese teams and then you play two against the seattle mariners then you come back and now it's the bay bridge series it's so odd to go exhibition now we're playing for real back to uh, exhibition, and then once again we're playing for real again. Well, as we sit here now recording this, this is the seventh game the A's have played in the last 13 days, and that's an uneven way to get your way into a season. It's not ideal, uh, but there, that was the price that was paid to go to Japan, and I don't think anybody regrets that, although the A's were 0-2 in the regular season games. It was just such a, a great experience and an opportunity to, to go overseas and uh, to be part of that, and for those of us who had the chance to get out Chris, as you did on the two days off and experienced the, the culture and the history um, of Japan. I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful thing. Now, you want to get into the rhythm of playing, but that's not going to be an issue for the A's because tomorrow's a day off as we record this uh, Wednesday, and then with opening day, uh, the A's literally will play 18 consecutive games. So all this talk that we're having now about uh, the stopping and starting and not having kind of an even uh, kind of orderly way to start the season. That'll go out the window in a hurry when you're talking about 18 consecutive days. Yeah, and to me, the biggest question, because we know the defense is good. We know they're a very athletic team. Uh, we know that the bullpen's a lockdown bullpen. They were just rated by MLB.com as the second best bullpen, only to the New York Yankees, and that's because of some of the arms that the Yankees added this year. But they're ranked the second best bullpen. I mean, really, the only question for me is... How do they get the ball from the starters to this great bullpen? 
Right, and uh, Mike Fires went three innings against the Mariners, and Marco Estrada went five the next day. I think that that will improve. I mean, it has to because you're gonna you'd fry your bullpen if your starters went short every time. Uh, Fires really feels great, and in fact, I had a long chat with him uh, toward the end of spring training, and he was even though he had the best year of his career last year, Chris, he feels even better this year physically. And that has to bode well for him. And I think the Coliseum is a great match for him because he's a high fastball pitcher, let's face it. Uh, and the ball was really flying out of the Tokyo Dome. And uh, I would think that, that pitching half his games at the Coliseum, as he did last year after the trade, um, I think that'll be a real plus for him. Uh, you don't want to go overboard with what happens during the spring, but Brett Anderson looked great. He looks in the best shape I've seen him in in years. Threw the ball great. Frankie Montas is... I think one of the most important things about Frankie Montas is that he can dominate because the A's primarily, Chris, as a starting rotation, they're finesse pitchers. They're guys that have to be fine, that have to be really sharp with their command. Frankie Montas can blow people away with his stuff, and now that he's out of that split finger pitch, I mean, he, you know, he could be a big winner for this team. Yeah, and he can eat up a lot of innings, and that's what they're going to need because last year, even though they won 97 games, it was the fewest innings ever pitched by an Oakland A staff. So hopefully Frankie can be one of those guys that can go deep in games. It's un- the Unfiltered Podcast with Chris Townsend here on A's Cast. The great Ken Korak, the voice of the A's, joins us. And you have the books in front of us. If these walls could talk, stories from the Oakland A's dugout, locker room, and press box. You did this with Susan Slusser, the forward by one of the great pitchers of all time, one of the great A's of all time, a Bay Area native, Dennis Eckersley. You know, I remember after you got done doing uh, the Renaissance Man about Bill King, you're like, I'm never going to do another book. You swore you wouldn't do another book. What made you say, you know what, I want to get back into this? Book writing is not an easy thing to do. You know, it's very personal. Um, It's kind of an emotional journey when you do it. Well, thanks to Susan. I mean, that was the reason, because she had a relationship with our publisher, Triumph Books, because she had written a previous A's book for them, as you know. And you talked to, to her about it quite a bit. And they approached her because the, the If These Walls Could Talk is part of a series of books that Triumph has published over the years. And they've gone to uh, reporters or broadcasters from, I think, basically all the teams in Major League Baseball uh, to contribute and write a book to be part of this this series. So, And they approached Susan, and then she was kind enough to ask me if I wanted to be uh, her co-author to write the book with her. And so, Chris, that was the genesis of it. And I, and I just think about what you do, and I know how much you put into it. And when when you're doing the, the book about Bill, it was truly amazing that the you talked to some of the greatest athletes, some of the greatest coaches, not only in Bay Area history, but in sports history. I got to think that part of the journey has got to be something that's so much fun for you as someone who you've been in love with sports your whole life. Well, and the interviews are energizing because I don't think people want to hear me write about myself for 350 pages. And this is a pretty long book. And so I think Susan felt the same way. There was a randomness to the way we went about it. Uh, Somebody said it was kind of an eclectic collection. But... We didn't know how the interviews were going to play out because we knew there were people we wanted to talk to uh, that had been instrumental and and so vital uh, in in kind of forming the history of the A's, Chris. But once we interviewed three or four different people, and they were enthralling because we had planned to sit down for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. It turned out we'd 
we talked for 45 minutes or even an hour with some of the people. And that was when we made the decision to run the interviews verbatim. So that's, I mean, if you go through the book, some of the, the chapters are 8 to 10, 12 pages of just straight interviews with some of these people who have been instrumental and have, have uh, meant so much to the franchise. So I think from that standpoint, it is a little bit of a glimpse inside a major league organization. So if, you, if you're fascinated, if you're, if you're interested about, I guess, kind of what makes a major league organization tick, hopefully you'll find this book entertaining and informative. You talk about putting yourself out there, and that's something that we do every day is we do live radio. But radio is different because once you say it and it goes through the mic and it goes through your radio or now through like a tune-in app, it's gone after that. You're putting yourself out there in a book. Talk about what that's like because, I mean, that's got to be nerve-wracking that once you put it out there in print, it's out there forever. No, and you can't take it back, right? Because <laughs> I've read, you know, once the book came out, Chris, and – I guess like any author, I read through it. There's a certain thrilling aspect of, of that, but there's a certain aspect of it that's kind of terrifying because I'm a professional broadcaster. I don't believe I'm a professional writer. And, you know, I, I overreact to everything and overanalyze everything, and that's part of my, uh, you know, it's just part of the way I've always been. And like even today, I was reading through one of the, one of the chapters getting ready for an interview, and I, I, there were like three or four words I used where I thought, God, if I could do it again, I wouldn't have used those words in that place. But So there are the moments when you go through the book, you go, oh, man. Yeah, right. But it's, I did the, we did the best we could with it. I think in anything you do in life, whether it's writing a book or in your job or you know whatever you do, um, all you can do is look back and, and say, did I do the best I could with it at the time? We can't be – none of us is going to be perfect. Vince Scully was the closest to that. Right, so we did the best we could with it, and I'm, you know, I'm happy with the way it turned out. Well, you guys are going to be okay because the one thing that uh, you have built up and Susan is sweat equity with this fan base, right? So, you know, people are going to love it because they love you guys, they love your work, they know about your passion. I mean, we know how hard Susan works. Susan is the hardest working beat writer I've ever been around. I mean, she wants to make sure that she she covers this team like a snuggie. She's all over it, and then how you feel about the broadcast and how much the broadcast means for you. And I think that's one thing that will make these books like this special. It's because your relationship, your personal relationship, both of you, with this fan base. And Susan has a great story. Not only what you were talking about, because we each had a chapter where we write about our approach to our jobs. I didn't want to sound preaching or like you know pedantic in that. But it's, it's, this is the way that, that I do it. I'm not saying that everybody else has to do it that way. And I went to some of the people I really respect and trust, and a bit like Lowell Cohn read through the chapter in its, in its infancy and was very encouraging um, to at least have the, the chance to say, well, this is the way. I, it doesn't, you don't have to do it this way, but this is kind of the template that I've used. But the point I'm getting to is Susan has a great story, and she's a... She's a wonderful writer, and she's incredibly hardworking, like you said, Chris, and very determined in what she does. Uh, she's tough to beat on a story. We've joked about that a lot. Her husband, Dan Brown, has written about that. And also as a woman, and she, there, 20 years ago I interviewed Susan, and I asked her, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you, what, what has it been like to be a woman and spending time in a major league clubhouse? And she thought, she said, well, I'm, I'm just a writer. I'm not a woman. I'm just a writer. And, she, and we, we've kind of joked about that. But the truth is that for over 20 years she's been doing this, 
And back when she first started, women, it wasn't as as accepted as it is today for to, for as many women as we see now to be around a major league team every day and spend so much time in a clubhouse. Literally, she was the first woman president of the Baseball Writers Association of America. So she has she's had an incredible career, and she shares a lot of those stories in this book. Well, think about it. I remember when that was going on, and I was... Would have been in the 80s, right? When they're like, you're going to allow a woman into the clubhouse or the locker room where there's naked men? How could that possibly happen? And now it's uh, not a big deal. I'm looking here at Chapter 6. Ken Korak, so you want to be a broadcaster. Why did you want to be a broadcaster? It's That's a hard question to answer because I've always wanted to be a broadcaster. From the time that I was probably seven or eight years old, this is what I wanted to do. And I give a lot of credit to my dad, who was a... Who's still alive? As, as you know, he's a hundred years old, but he was a baseball and basketball coach in high school and junior college in Los Angeles. So I was going to games, Chris, when I was two or three years old. So I grew up with it. And then when you growing up in LA, it was a lot like growing up in the Bay Area, where up here you had Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons when the Giants moved out here in '58. And growing up with Vin Scully and Chick Hearn and Dick Enberg and some of the giants of the business. I give those folks a lot of credit in in not only molding uh, my interest in doing this, but also being they really inspired me. Because when you when you listen to those guys do a game, they were masters at their craft. And I think a lot of my interest in doing this came because I, I was lucky enough to grow up listening to those guys. I always thought you were gonna be a UCLA basketball player. Well, I tried that at one time. It didn't work. So, <laughs> as I say in the book, as I write in the book, in like the second or third page, I played on a great high school team, that, and I had nothing to do with it. Well, I can tell you this for me, because I grew up listening to Jerry Coleman, and then I've been in the Bay Area since 91, but I have never listened, I mean, to anyone more than you, to where... I really listen, right? Because it's it's my job to listen and to follow the game and everything. So it's like for you, for that's why I call you the voice of summer. It's because for me, for all these years, I've never listened so intently to a play-by-play guy than you. So it's you know for me, how you talk about those guys, you're that for me. Well, I'm honored you said that and hang a star on that. Mm-hmm. The uh, going back, I listened a lot to Jerry Coleman too. In fact, when I was a kid. I'm dating myself, but this is when the San Diego Padres were a minor league team in the Coast League, and they played at this old, beautiful little ballpark in Mission Valley, Westgate Park. And their games were broadcast on Kogo Radio, K-O-G-O, 600. And we could get the games in L.A. at night. And they had these two broadcasters, Al Coupe and Al Shuss, were the voices of the minor league San Diego Padres. And that's how enthralled I was with radio and also sports on the radio, that I would listen to those minor league games when there wasn't a Dodger game on. And, of course, the Angels moved to L.A. in 1961. Let's talk about Bob Melvin, because Bob Melvin is in your book, and it's Chapter 9. And I think about what Bob... Bob's just not a manager. There's something about him that's different than anybody I've covered. I've been very fortunate in my career to work in the NFL, to work in the NBA, the NHL, of course, Major League Baseball, been around a lot of different people. I've never been around someone like him to where he – he normally you have to just build the relationship, but he builds the relationship with you. And 
what he has meant to this franchise since he came here. We remember what it was like before he he was here, and no one talks to him more than you. What's it been like for you as a professional and personally to have this relationship with Bob Melvin? It's been everything to me because when you have that kind of access with the manager, it means a lot because we're delivering the news every day, and he is so forthcoming, incredibly professional. He has great leadership skills, and he's he's the embodiment, I think, of everything you would want in a manager and a leader uh, in the clubhouse, um, on the field, strategy, dealing with players, the way he communicates. And in in the interview, I think that a couple things really stand out. Number one is the journey that he's been on, because like everyone, he's introspective, and he's taken a look back at his earlier times managing, and he's a better manager. He'd be the first one to tell you than he was when he first started with the Mariners. So he's gone Mariners and Diamondbacks and A's, and he talks about that journey uh, towards self-improvement as a manager in the interview. The other thing is that he talks about leadership and relationships with his players and how he manages that and also manages uh, with the front office in the dealings with Billy Bean and David Forrest. And so there are a lot of... It's an inspirational chapter in in some ways, Chris, because of the way that he delineates how he goes about uh, be, being trying to trying to formulate his own ideas as far as leadership is concerned. And I think it was it was really interesting. And you, you bring up a great point, and it was something that really Mark Jackson, who he 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 helped turn around the Golden State Warriors. And I Steve Kerr is going to get all the glory with the rings. But you have to give Mark Jackson some credit for just changing the culture of the Golden State Warriors. But he was really bad at managing up. Some guys can manage down, but you have to manage up. There is an owner who's rich, and there's multiple owners. You know, I mean, if you're like here with the Giants, they've got a ton of owners. So you've got to handle the owners. You got to handle these presidents. You've got to handle these front office people. You know, we're now in a world where it's it's a collaborative effort when you talk about the front office and the manager and setting the lineup and the pitching rotations in the bullpen. So it's important to be a great communicator with the players below you and your staff below you. But it is a great skill to be able to manage up. And I think part of it for him is that he's secure in who he is. He doesn't do this for the adulation or the attention. I think he does it because he loves it and he can influence people. And he's very competitive. He wants to win. He burns badly to win. So the fact that, and I mentioned this, I've talked about this with, about Art Howe, that the fact that Bo Mel is such a gentleman and he's so gracious, it masks the fact that he's also extremely competitive and burns badly to win. And he does. He has... He's been able to do to, to bridge that, uh, Chris. And I mean, people know that in every with with every major league team, the front offices have their influence. But even understanding that with with Bo Mel, he's able to maintain his authority in the clubhouse and respect from the players. And that can be a balancing act. And I think he does that really well. Yeah, there's no doubt because the players, you know, why am I not playing? Well, <laughs> well, here's why you're not playing, but. This is going to be good for you. It's funny how, how, how you got to do that. Steve Vucinich, what is this, 52nd year with the A's. He's been here his entire life. Uh, the stories that he has, I mean, he's truly one of the great A's of all time. And we've seen that when we honor the older players and they come back and they still have such a great relationship with Vuce. Just talk about what, what in the book you mention him, and he should be mentioned because I mean, this man's been around the A's for 52 years. It's hard to separate Voos, who was here, like you just said, from the inception in 1968, and Mickey Morabito. Yeah. 
um, who was hired by Billy Martin to come out here. When they had this skeleton front office under Charlie Finley, they only had two or three full-time employees in the front office. And Mickey came here when Billy Martin came out. And they're, 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 what they do is, is intertwined in a sense because, to me, traveling all around the country with these guys for the last 24 years and flying over 50,000 miles a year, Voos with the equipment and Mickey with the hotels and the airlines and managing all that and the flights. And it's, it's really remarkable how well they do it, and it's seamless. It's a well-oiled machine. Voos is the A's team historian. I mean, he's the guy you go to if you want to find out about a player, or, along with maybe David Feldman. I think you could put him in that category a little bit, too. But uh, he has so much information, and, and he's such a, a great storyteller. When you get Voos to tell stories, he's one of those guys that sounds like baseball. Like when we used to interview Ron Washington, and you just heard him talk about the game, he sounds like baseball. I mean, you can you could you could kind of hear the ball hitting the glove or the the bat hitting the baseball when you listen to Voos talk because there's a there's kind of a texture to it in a way. I mean, he is a baseball person. Yeah, let me give you the story. So, with the Raiders, we were down in Arizona. I knew Don and Charlie's, the famous baseball spring training hangout, was closing. I didn't know when it was closing, so I called Voos. And said, hey, can you get me in? Because it was packed, right? And Voos is in Hawaii. He said, no problem. So Voos gets us in, and he goes, make sure you order the chicken, my chicken that's on the menu. So the famous baseball place, Voos's chicken's on the menu. Voos's name was on that menu for all those years. Yeah, and they're closing April 10th. And the legend, I have a similar story with the legendary Gary Hughes, our great friend, longtime baseball man who lives over in Santa Cruz. Now, working for the Red Sox, my wife wanted to get into Don and Charlie's over one of the last days we were in Arizona when I think we might have had a night game or there was a, a function that evening that um, I had to go to. And Gary got Denise into Don and Charlie's, like with three weeks to spare. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and Keith Lippman is a man that's been evaluating talent for this organization. For he's one of the lifers too, and he's one of the one of the true special people that's been around and has survived multiple, you know, GMs and regimes. And you know, Billy Bean loves him. In all the years that the A's have been in existence, and all the World Series and postseasons and all the glorious moments, Keith Lippman might be the most valuable A of every of all of them over all these years. Not just because he has a great eye for talent or that he's a great administrator because he's administered the A's minor league system for all these decades, but the way that he goes about his business. And again, in the book, he talks about that it's, it's even beyond leadership skills. It's the way he manages people, manages minor league coaches and managers. He assigns books for them to read on better ways to teach and communicate and to be leaders and he's delved deeply into psychology that he was he was instrumental when the A's hired Harvey Dorfman uh, who was one of the first sports psychologists nobody else was doing uh, something like, like that back in those days Carl Keel came to the A's organization working uh, helping to coordinate the minor league instruction so this is a multi-layered interview I think with Keith Lippman and very much in depth because um, he is someone that that has been so instrumental and it's not just roll the balls and bats out there and teach people how to slide or how to hit the curveball. Uh, there are many facets to the teaching that goes on. In the it's like a it's like a classroom every day when you're down there in Arizona with the minor league players. And Keith Lipman has been uh, like the master professor. It's like a PhD 
in learning how to, to manage a baseball organization. Yeah, he's been honored as one of the all-time greats. And then, of course, you know, something that you lived through, we all lived through, and then it came out in a book, and it, it made Billy Bean famous, and it, and uh, Moneyball changed baseball in, in a lot of ways. And, and you talk about Moneyball in the book. There is, and I, t- I poke some fun at myself because the part that I played in Moneyball, and I spent an hour shooting a scene with Bennett Miller, the great director has been a, uh, an Academy Award nominee, I think, two or three times. It is sitting, you know, on the proverbial cutting room floor somewhere in Hollywood. It never made it into the movie, so uh, we take kind of a humorous look at, at that experience, and then uh, it was just so much fun seeing the premiere and seeing um, A's fans come out in downtown Oakland when the world premiere of Moneyball uh, took place there, Chris. And A's fans going crazy when Hatterberg hit the home run like they were there live, like it was happening then, and listening to Bill King's call. Of course, I had to write about Bill in the book, too. It's hard for me to do any writing without writing about Bill. So there's a chapter about that incredible emotional weekend in Cooperstown uh, when Bill finally received the Frick Award two years ago. You know, it's 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 always something that's cool about this organization, that this this whether right or wrong, this organization's always been cutting edge. It has been, and then the the voice of the fan, and this, Susan and I went after um, Jonas Rivera, who is uh, one of the honchos over at Pixar, the great motion picture and animation studio, literally an Academy Award winner himself. And he's about as ardent an A's fan as there is. He lives and dies with every game. Uh, He's been to a 1,000 games with his dad. It's something he's passed on to his own kids through the generations with the Rivera family. And he, he talks about the inspiration that he's gotten from the A's, and it's kind of a symbiosis in a way, the, the A's and Pixar and the whole Oakland community, and the funky vibe in Oakland that has spawned some creativity. And and he's he's gained some inf- inspiration from being an A's fan, and being part of the Oakland vibe, I think, is intertwined in what he's tried to do at Pixar. And I think it was very interesting to, to hear him bring all that out. And Pixar is this, that's big time. No, it's big. It's big. I mean, if you ever get the chance to, to tour those studios, I mean, they've done some incredible things over there. The book is If These Walls Could Talk Stories from the Oakland A's Dugout, Locker Room, and Press Box. Ken Korak and Susan Slusser, forwarded by the great Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley. My friend, I can't wait to read it. I just got my copy today. I did notice that it's not signed. It will be signed, but we have to get Miss Slusser to sign it too, right? Yeah, yeah. See the deal. Like I, allow, I let Susan just do this whole bottom thing, and then yeah. I kind of scribble something on, <laughs> on the top because she's the real star of this book. Well, you two are, are, are great friends, great colleagues, and it's been an honor to work around you. And now with my new role in this, it's it was a no-brainer for me to to come on board to, to be with you and and, and Vince and, and Ray and. Uh, we're going to make a lot of fun things happen this year, but we're going to talk a lot about this book. Good luck with the book, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun on AceCast this year. Well, welcome aboard, Townie. It's awesome to have you with us. I know that you were meant to do this. I mean, it was meant to be from the days when you were pitching for the Spartans that you would someday join the A's broadcast team full-time, and we're thrilled to have you, and good luck uh, with the AceCast. And are you going to literally work 24 hours a day, or you will be... There will be times when you'll be sleeping. No, I'll be on the air constantly. Everything you're hearing on here is live, Ken. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.